Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. So if you've got a Bible, although I think it's going to come up, I'm going to read uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. That really is the final part of um, last week's message, that Habakkuk ends up deciding, I'm going to stand and I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him, he is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim, because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is owning fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray. 
Father, we are, and I am very much aware that we stand in a place of, of much real peace. And Lord, we stand at a time where, uh, though we can pray about other situations, it's sometimes hard for us to appreciate the reality because our situation is so different. And Lord, as we come to look at uh, a people that were facing your judgment, and Lord, we look at the, how they handled your people and the violence that they brought to them. Father, it's our prayer, it's my prayer, that you would teach us something of how we can handle the world in which we live and the things that we see. And Father, that we would respond according to faith, not according to culture, not according to fear, but according to faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Habakkuk, right at the beginning of this chapter, he, he, he looks back and he says, he says, basically, I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch to see what God will do and I'm going to carry on in my normal everyday life. And, and I think that's important because last week I ended with this uh, point that so often what we do when we don't understand something is, is we find it very difficult to wait there. If you don't know what's going on, you don't, often we're not very good at waiting and we try and, and, we try and find solutions to it. I, I don't know about you, but... I've been married for a number of years, and one of the things that happens when Pauline and I go out, and if we're going to meet somewhere, I've come to learn this over time, is that if we agree to meet somewhere, if I'm not there before Pauline, before the time, she won't necessarily be at the place we've agreed to meet. Yeah? She's just likely to have wandered off, found another shop or something. And I've discovered that that's just common. Pauline won't just wait. She won't be standing outside the shop waiting for me. I have to look in various other shops to see where she is. And I've, I've just got used to that, that happening now. And so it used to bother me a lot. Yeah, I'd turn up and she wasn't there. But nowadays, I, I've got used to it. And we're not very good at waiting. And we're not very good at waiting, partly because we're very resourceful. Many of us are very resourceful people. So if somebody says, and, and also we see, we can sometimes think of, being resourceful and acting as a sign of leadership. You know, I'll, I'll just get on and do something. Yeah, if you're sitting in a group, we're waiting and no one knows what to do. Someone gets up and goes, right, I'm going to do something. Yeah, and that's, that's how we react. That's our culture, yeah, to, to sort of react, to do stuff, to get on, to sort it out, to make a difference. And yet Habakkuk, he waits. He waits. And this passage tells us that as he waits, and sometimes you need to, God speaks. God speaks. God finds it difficult sometimes to speak when we're speaking. When we're acting, when we're doing, God can sometimes find it difficult to get his voice to be heard. I know you can't imagine that, but it's true. And what he says here, what God says to Habakkuk, is write down what I tell you. Write it down so that a herald, i.e. someone who can, who can speak it out, can run with it, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. So God has a time for things. Things don't just happen randomly. He has a time for things. He says it speaks of the end and it won't prove false. 
So when God speaks, he expects us to listen, to hear him, and to, and to respond to what he says. And this, this is God's words. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. You see, one of the biggest differences between us and, and God, and particularly in this time, is God appoints time for certain things to happen. Yeah? And sometimes we can, we can struggle with that because it doesn't happen when we want it to happen. It doesn't happen as soon as we think. And also we struggle with what goes on in the time that it doesn't happen. So if God says, I'm, I'm coming, I will be soon, I will be coming soon, and there's stuff going on, I'm like, but what do I do in the meantime? Do I help? Do I get involved? Do I do something or do I wait? And so often we can be like that. We can wonder, but God appoints a time. You see, when Jesus came to earth, it was at a particular time. It wasn't just because uh, it was almost like, oh, he just got flung out of heaven at that moment and it all went a bit wrong. No, he came at a particular time. I mean, the Bible says at the right time, Christ came. It was an appointed time and God still appoints time. He doesn't stop doing that because the New Testament coming, he doesn't stop appointing a time. Now, Habakkuk prophesied in around 605 BC. And he's prophesying at a time when Judah are, at that, actually at that moment, it was the Assyrians that were the, that were the sort of, um, the, the, the army in, in, in charge. They were the world power, if you like. And what Habakkuk and Jeremiah, if you know anything about that book, were prophesying was actually um, the Assyrians, that's going to come to an end. And the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take over us. That's what they were prophesying. They're going to come and take over us. And we're going to be taken to Babylon. And do you know what was happening? Jeremiah was saying this, and clearly Habakkuk was saying this, but there were other prophets at the time who were just saying the opposite. Oh, no, no, the Babylonians aren't going to come. They're not going to come. That's not going to happen. We don't need to worry about that. We're still in alliance with the Egyptians. Everything's going to be okay. So you had these two stories. One, pe one people are saying the Babylonians are coming. Someone's saying, no, they're not. It wasn't a popular message that the Babylonians were coming. So those prophets used to get persecuted. They used to be told, no, you're a false prophet. Habakkuk prophesied, 605. Babylon comes. 586. So that is some 18 years later, 19 years later. So he waits 19 years. Think about that. 19 years before what he prophesied, before what he saw comes to pass that Babylon come and they take over Judah and they take, they take remnants back to Babylon. It's where we get the song, you know, by the rivers of Babylon. It comes from the exiled people into Babylon. And then it's not for another 50 years, in 539 BC, that Babylon itself gets judged. And, and chapter 2 talks about the judgment of Babylon. It talks about them receiving judgment from God. But it's another 50 years. We don't even know whether Habakkuk sees it. We don't even know whether he sees it. And yet he prophesies this judgment over this people. Now imagine living in a place where you're talking and you're believing something, but you know that popular opinion at that time is not what you're saying. It's the opposite of what you're saying. You're saying, ah, oh, do you know what? I, I, this is what I feel God's saying to us. And everyone's, no, no, that's not going to happen. Be careful of popular opinion. 
even Christian popular opinion. Be careful of just going along with stuff because that's how it gets done. That's the way we think about it. Because sometimes God has a different voice, but we do have to wait. And it's one of our biggest challenges is how to linger and wait for God. Because do you know what I think we do naturally when it comes to waiting is we respond in one of two ways. So if you think about the church, and uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to talk about that. But I did, I did, I did do a, if you like, a secular job for a long time. Um, but if you think about, if you think about the church, and I think that waiting and lingering are challenging for us, and, and we do one of two things: you see a concern, or maybe God even puts a concern in your heart. God raises something up that you, that you begin to feel yeah, in the church. And you say to yourself, why isn't the church doing something about that? Why aren't people you know, going out and helping the poor? Why, or why, aren't, why aren't we doing welcoming this way? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? You, you, know, you know what I mean? You can have a concern. You can have something that you feel about the church. And you begin to ask the question, why aren't we doing anything about that? Yeah? I've had all those questions yeah? in all the time I've been to church. I've had lots of questions like that. And sometimes we can just ask the question, why is the church not doing anything? Yeah, I've observed something and we're not doing anything. I've mentioned it to people. No one's doing anything. Why is the church not doing anything about that issue? And then what we can do is we, you know, we're living with that and we, that doesn't go and we feel that God's saying something. And then we go, well, if the church won't do anything, I will. If they're not going to do something, then I will. Because that's a need that needs to be sorted. That's a concern. I'm going to do something. Though it linger, wait. Because both those responses... One can just end up being criticism. Why isn't the church doing anything? Can end up becoming a criticism. I know that because I've been there. I've been there, not just as a pastor, but I've been there just as a person in the church watching. Why aren't we doing anything about that? And for other people, it can become a false call. Something you feel you've got to go and do something about. But either situation is not how God does it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let me give you a lesson from the life of Moses. You see, Moses, you'll know the story, Moses was found in a basket by Pharaoh's daughter. He gets, then, he gets raised by his mother, but he gets raised as a prince of Egypt. He then goes to Egypt, where it says he, he became learned in all the ways of Egypt. And at the time, Egypt, were the, they were the superpower of the time. They were the world power of the time. He gets raised in the ways of Egypt, but we know that in his heart, he was still an Israelite. He was there in Egypt, but he was still an Israelite in his heart, and he saw the oppression of the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt at the time, and you know the story well, because even if you've not read the Bible, you've probably seen the film Prince of Egypt. You know the story well, where Moses gets to a point when he's 40 years old, where he takes it upon himself to do something. It's almost like he says, why isn't anyone doing anything? The Israelites are being treated unjustly. 
It's not fair. It's not right. Why is that happening? Why isn't anyone doing anything? And actually, do you know what? I can do something. And this was Moses. So what does he do? You, you know the story. He goes and he, uh, he, he kills an Egyptian who's mistreating an Israelite. And then the next day, he, that, that crime gets exposed and he runs away. You see, Moses, he, he did what Habakkuk says not to do. He didn't, he didn't wait. What Moses did was he saw the need and the need was so evident before his eyes that he acted on the need. He ran. And in, if you like, in his human wisdom and strength, he sought to help. He sought to do something. And in some ways, you would have thought if anyone could have helped, Moses could have done. He was a prince. He had power. He had authority. He runs to help. But actually, God hadn't sent him to help. And no doubt it was difficult for him because he's looking at injustice. He is looking at abuse. He is looking at oppression, but God hadn't sent him. I've heard Terry Virgo preach on that point, and, and, he, and he calls it Moses, a man not yet sent. And he preaches on that very point of, of him trying to, li, to, to bring about freedom for Israel by his own efforts. He tried to help. See, it's interesting, that desire to help, the fact that he had been raised as a, as a, as a prince of Egypt, but in his heart was an Israelite, all of that God would one day use. But God would use it. But what God needed to do was to get out of Moses' effort. He needed to get out of Moses, I can do this. In fact, I feel, I feel like I've called to do this. I've got all the skills to do this. He actually needed to get that out of him. We can sometimes think that, oh, that's why God gifted Moses in all those different ways. But actually, what God needed from Moses was absolute surrender. So we know the story. Moses runs, he leaves Egypt, and he spends 40 years in the desert. 40 years. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to depress anyone, but it took God 40 years to prepare Moses. 40 years. So that when God finally comes to him, Moses is at the point of, he's taken the absolute opposite view. I, no, not me. <laughs> Please don't send me. Okay, okay, I admit, years ago, I thought I could do it. Now, don't send me. I've got nothing to offer. And it was almost like God said, now you're ready. When you realise you have nothing to offer, now you're ready. You think about that passage in Philippians 2 when it says of Jesus, in order for Jesus to fulfil the purpose that God had for him on earth, what happened? He made himself nothing. Nothing. That doesn't mean he said, well, I've just, I've just got some skills here because I'm God, I've got some skills. No, he made himself nothing. If you read through John, the amount of times he says, no, you know, I only do what the Father does. No, it's not me. It's not my way or it's his work. No, it's not about me. Jesus says that. It's not about me. It's all, it's all, it's all him. It's the glory goes to God. It's not. He says that a lot in the book of John. So Moses makes himself nothing and he's reluctant to go. And I just wonder sometimes whether we've lost a little bit of that 
we've lost a little bit of that. Actually, it's not really about me and my efforts and my gifts. I know sometimes we grow up in churches where we do gift discovery courses and trying to find out what gifts I've got and what talents I've got. But actually, I don't think that's how God does it. I think God wants you empty and then he uses you. He puts stuff into you. He doesn't need you to come with all your stuff. God, I've got all my tools here. Can you use me? I know we sometimes think that, and I know sometimes we get quoted that passage in Isaiah, here I am, send me, but God uses people who come with nothing. Do you know what? He didn't need to do much to Gideon because Gideon was already the least. Why did God use Gideon? Well, it wasn't just because he was randomly thinking. I think it was because Gideon, Gideon says of himself, I'm the least in my family, and my family is the least in Israel. (laughs) Oh, okay, I can use you. Because I'm not battling anything. I'm not fighting any, 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 any desire you have. I'm not fighting your destiny at that point. Though it linger, wait. Wait. You see, the danger that we have, and it's a real danger, I think, of the, why isn't the church doing something? If the church won't do something, I will. Or if this church won't do something, I'll find a church that will do something. The danger of that is you can just miss the will of God. You can just miss the will of God for your life. Because God does not sustain human effort. He doesn't get behind your efforts and go, 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 go. He doesn't do that. You are far more effective when you give God everything and you become nothing than you ever are with whatever gifts you think you've got. God brings divine solutions, not human ones. So there's a danger that you can miss it. There's also a danger because of impatience and immaturity in us that we can just give up. God's called you, God's spoken to you, God's given you something, but you give up because you don't understand the very process that God gets you from there to there is the process that prepares you for the ministry. The very process is that what prepares you for the ministry. We sometimes think that God has called us to ministry because God calls you, doesn't he? You think about Joseph. God spoke to Joseph when he was 17 about what his ministry would be. Joseph never imagined it would require going to prison. That didn't enter his head. Oh, brothers, one day I'm going to rise and you're going to fall. How amazing is that? He never even imagined that prison was on the agenda. And I remember growing up in a church and I was always quite enthusiastic as a uh, now, the, I'm, I've moved on from my teenage years where I was probably, I wasn't so much rebellious, but I probably wasn't nice as a teenager. But I moved on from that and I became enthusiastic about church and stuff. And I remember asking this question in our church, what are we going to do with the, um, that age group? When, when people get to like the end of school, we found in our church a lot of them just left. They just, they just dropped off. And I remember walking to work. I remember walking to the station thinking, God, what are we going to do about that? 
all these people, we get to that, they get to that age and then they just leave. They just stop coming. What are we gonna, I mean, I was one of the few that seemed to remain. What are we going to do about that? I remember asking that question. I remember another situation where we just started Alpha in the church. It was the first Alpha course we ever ran. And I brought some friends to Alpha. And uh, he was a Christian. She wasn't a Christian. And at the end of the course, they wanted to know more. And so uh, even at that point, I remember talking to my pastor about running an Alpha Plus course. And he was like, oh, no, we're not ready to do that. I was like, how can you say that? There are people here who want to know Jesus. How can you say that you're not ready? And I remember struggling with that. I remember grappling with that. I remember also just the whole area of of racial diversity that I I got involved in. I didn't choose to get involved in it. It wasn't that I I wasn't going there with flags or anything like that. Um, But I became a leader in the church where I was the only black leader and the church was beginning to grow and a lot of that diversity was, was, was racial. And so I was thrust into this role. And uh, boy, did I have some things I had to go through in that area. And I realised as I thought back about these situations, I realised that on that first situation, as a young man, I was thinking, God, I don't know what to do about this. All these people just leave the church at that age. I don't know what to do. But it was there in my heart. It was in my heart. And, but I didn't do anything with it. I don't, I don't remember doing anything with it. But I do remember years later when the new pastor came and he said to me, Owen, he said some nice things about me and then he said, we want you to take on either the 12 to 14s in the church or the 20s, sort of 18 plus. And the moment he said that, something quickened in my spirit because I thought, oh God, I, I, could, I could become part of the answer to the thing you talked to me about years ago. I could become, and I, immediately it quickened in my spirit and I said, I said, 12 to 14s, I said, you know, I'm not really, I don't really do the children thing. Yeah. And uh, even though I've got teenagers, I don't really do the children thing. Um, I said, that, that, that appeals to me. And so, and so I, I found this really odd situation where that deep prayer I'd been praying, that unresolved prayer, God had put me in a place to be an answer to it in the church. And what that meant was I was really motivated because there was a sense of call. And it wasn't something that I hadn't gone around and saying, you know, why haven't we got a ministry for this? Or why aren't we doing that? I don't remember thinking about it, but I I remember that distinct walk up to the station where I asked the question, what do we do, God, about this? I don't remember much else than that. And then God began to use me in that kind of way. And that was years ago now. That was like 16, 17 years ago. And and I would say that to to this day, there's a 20s still in that church, and there are groups, small groups, that began through that ministry. There are people that are in ministry from that ministry. When God has his way, he has his way. And a lot of that, well, none of that was me. You know me, yeah? None of that was me. That was God, God was at work in that place. And I remember the Alpha one, I struggled. When my pastor said, no, we're not ready to do that, I struggled. I remember my friend struggling. I thought, Steve, salvation is on the line here. And you're saying no. But you know what? As I look back, and even not long after I look back, he was wise. Because since then, that church has probably run Alpha for 15 consecutive years. Three Alpha courses a year. 
every year for about 15 years. When we celebrated doing 10 years of Alpha, we'd seen well over 1,000 people do our Alpha course and 200 people saved on our Alpha course. And God used me in that as well. But I needed to, to back off my thing. Why aren't the church doing something about this? If you won't, I will. I've run my own Alpha Plus course over here. Do you know what I learned? I learned that maturity comes through submission. It comes through trust, and it comes through patience. It doesn't come through your efforts. It doesn't even come through reading books. Yeah? When you learn to submit, when you learn to trust, when you learn to do the thing that seems opposite of what you feel to do, that's where maturity comes. Because I made myself, in those situations, accountable. I just said, okay. Well, I didn't just say, okay. As I said, with the Alpha one, I struggled with it. I thought, how do, how do, oh, that doesn't make any sense to me. I thought, we've got loads of people in the church. But that's how it comes. You see, God may have called you to a particular ministry. There probably is a U-shaped hole in the church. But you're wrong in thinking that you're ready for it. God has to mould and mend and bend and break, almost to the point where you don't want to do the thing. And at that point, when you say, God, you know what? Just, I don't even want to be involved in that anymore. Okay, you're ready now. Really? Almost, almost where you need to go. And you need to be careful when you have a concern. When you see something in the church and you think, why isn't the church doing this? Why isn't the church doing that? Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we over the... Why, why, why? You need to be careful that your concern doesn't become a commentary. Well, you're just commentating on what's not happening. And it doesn't become a criticism. And it doesn't become a false call. If you're not going to do it, I'll do it. Because maturity doesn't come out of that process. Maturity comes out of trusting God for things. Maturity comes from looking to him for things. And the truth is, if you, if you wait for God, the very thing that he has got you to see, he may well use you to fill. The very thing that you think, why isn't the church doing that? God sometimes actually has his hand on you to do that, but you're not ready yet. You're in that Moses period. I don't mean to remind you, it was 40 years for Moses. Yeah? I'm not sure any of us are going to do the Exodus, so maybe we don't need that long, but it was 40 years for Moses to get prepared for God. You see, spotting a gap is one thing. Filling it in a fruitful way is, a, is another thing. God uses everyday circumstances of life to prepare you for the ministry he's called you to do. Those circumstances are not hurdles. They're not things, oh, I just need to get all this out of the way. I just need to get all, you know, all this normal life stuff. Pauline had the babies. I've got stuff to do. No, that's not how it works. God uses those very things to prepare you for the very ministry. Though it linger, Wait. Secondly, the, in verse 4, it speaks of 
see he is puffed up. And here it's speaking about Babylon and it's speaking particularly about Nebuchadnezzar. You see, being puffed up is like being badly proud, being really proud. And pride stops you having faith. Because when you have pride, there's a little bit of you that thinks you can do something. Yeah? And faith doesn't come from you thinking you can do something. Faith comes from trusting God when you can't do anything. That's where faith comes from. So here he speaks of pride. If you rely on yourself, do you know what? When we rely on ourselves, when we, even in our, even in our most humble moments, we proudly try and attack things and do things for God, we're opposing God. We're not helping him. So see, he is puffed up. So Nebuchadnezzar, he was opposing God. He wasn't even interested in God. It then speaks of these woes. And it's interesting the way the, way the writer communicates it. There are five woes, and all of those woes are spoken by the people. They're not spoken by God. God says, this is what the people will say to Nebuchadnezzar. And the five woes, it talks about the wicked will be punished. It, the woes are greed, covetousness, violence, cruelty and idolatry. Those are the five woes. And you could summarise in this way, and it's a really good thing I can summarise it, rather than going through all of it. Babylon was going to reap what it had sown. Babylon was going to reap what it had sown. It had sown into greed, covetousness, violence, cruelty and idolatry, and it was going to reap that same thing. Because the principle of seed time and harvest is a biblical principle. And it was going to reap what it had sown. And people were going to to observe that. And that was what was going to happen to that nation. And then at the end of verse 4, it speaks of the righteous shall live by faith. And by faith, Habakkuk speaks of the continuing trust in God and clinging to God's promises even in the darkest of days. So it's interesting that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, came from God. It didn't come from Habakkuk. It doesn't come from Paul. It comes from God. God points to ha- points Habakkuk in the direction of where he needs to go if he is going to survive in a world where there are problems, where there are issues, where there are dark days. God says, the righteous shall live by their faith. You trust me. Trust me. Look to me. Hold on to me. Even when everything seems to be going in the opposite direction of what you think it should be, even when you're seeing evil overwhelming, trust me. The righteous shall live by their faith. And the faith of the righteous produces a harvest. See time and harvest. So if you hold on to God, if you get to that place of your trust in God, do you know what happens? Peace comes. When you genuinely trust God, peace comes. I don't know how many of you have spoken to Phil. You know, Phil, he's not not here today, but but Phil has quite an incredible story of, uh, you know, living in a place where, you know, he he shared a house with his his parents. He had been in the same job for many, many, many years. And then he moved to Brixton. Yeah? And if you know Phil, and people who know him from back in Catford probably think, what? Phil did what? 
Yeah, he, he moved to Brixton. He gave up his job, he moved to Brixton, and he rented a flat. And it's like, how? Phil doesn't do that kind of thing. Yeah, if you know Phil, he's very cautious, naturally. I've known him for many, many, many years. He's very cautious. He doesn't do that kind of thing. But he says now, he says, do you know what, Owen? When I had a job and money, I was more anxious than now I am when I don't always know where the money's coming from or I'm having to rely on God, I'm having to trust him. I was more anxious before than I am now. Why? Because the righteous will live by faith. You put yourself in a place where you trust God. Now, please, don't mishear me. Don't mishear me. Don't walk home if you're married to your wife and say, do you know what? I'm going to give up work. I'm just going to give up work and I'm going to just trust God forever. No, <laughs> please don't do that. Yeah? Talk to me before you do that because we also need wisdom. Yeah? In the past, I wouldn't have said that and someone would have done that and I'd have found out and I'd think, oh my goodness, what have I done? Yeah, so please don't just do that. Because you need wisdom. But whatever your situation is, you do need faith. You do need faith. Because if you do not have faith, you won't trust him. And if you don't trust him, it's because you're trusting yourself. And if you're trusting yourself, that comes out of pride and pride opposes God. God gives grace to the humble, doesn't it say? He, he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. How many of us want to oppose God? Of course we don't. You don't want to oppose God, I don't want to oppose God. So the righteous will live by faith and that means I am continuing to trust God and I'm clinging to God's promises even in the darkest of days. And some people around our nation and around the world are experiencing the darkest of days. And we're not, necessarily. Although our days, don't, don't, don't be fooled, they're dark. And they're dark because it's so easy in our world to trust something else. I can even go to church, and what gives me faith about church is the worship. It's the speaker. It's, it's the stories. It's the testimonies. All of those things are great, but they're not God. In the end, there's only one thing that you can really hold on to and it will bear fruit and that is when you trust God and you believe in him. And then the passage speaks of them taunting the Babylonians that God was going to turn the whole thing around and that they were going to reap what they sowed. And sometimes you look at the world, even in our world, even in very simple ways, and you see people get away with stuff. Yeah? Does it ever annoy you? People get away with stuff. And you think, why does that happen? Why does God seem to allow that? Why does God allow those kinds of things to happen? And I'll just tell you this story. It's a really simple life story. It's a friend of Pauline's. I don't give any names, but there was a... A couple that we knew, you know, not, not a Christian couple, uh, but they'd been together for many years, similar length of time to us at the time, then had a couple of kids a bit later on in life. I think he was an antiques collector. And he used to buy things and sell them in a little shop. And um, on one occasion, he went and bought, he bought this thing off of eBay. Pauline used to buy stuff off eBay. 
Um, and he, I remember him, I didn't know the whole story, I just know that he went to a house to buy something off of eBay from a woman and he ended up in a relationship with that woman. And uh, he ended up leaving his girlfriend and their two kids and moving in with this woman. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing happens all the time. But, but there's part of you that goes, why is, that, why is that allowed to happen? Because then, you know, the girl he left, suddenly she's under huge pressure. She's got two little kids and she's got to work and she's got to raise the kids. And you think, gosh, God, why does that happen? And some of us will think, well, and why do, why do men get away with that? You know, Pauline was just t- telling me earlier today, statistics show that, you know, when couples divorce and there are children involved, I don't know what the percentage is, but so much higher percentage of women end up almost in poverty. And men go, go off, they remarry, and they all that kind of stuff. You think, why does, why does that happen? Why do we live in a world where those kinds of things happen? Or, or why do we live in a world where people get abused and people get sold into slavery? And Why does that kind of thing happen? And I, I don't have an answer as to why those things happen, but I would say this, that, and Habakkuk helps us understand this, God sees it all. God sees it all. And in his appointed time, God will deal with that. God will deal with that. And you you can be sure of that because in Habakkuk, he even talks about the motives of the heart. How does anyone know the motives of the heart? God knows the motives. God sees how people respond. God sees people who leave the responsibility, the the covenant relationship that they're in. God and leaves the, the mess that they leave. God sees it all. God knows it all. And people will reap what they sow. Whether it's in this life or the next life, people will reap what they sow. And in the meantime, you and I have to hold on. And what we have to prevent from happening is that when we see the same kind of injustice, that we don't become bitter. We don't allow a bitter root of angst to grow up in us. Because that's a danger. And it's a danger when you commentate on the world rather than when you lament, when you trust God for things. So when we see things like that, injustice, when we see suffering, when we see evil and it's unjust and we're like, God, why does that happen? Our response is to pray. And you turn your prayers, you turn your pain into prayers. That's how we are to respond to injustice. Obviously, where something becomes really evident and obvious and you you can help, then then you help. But you're not driven to help because you see a need and no one else is doing anything. That's not what drives you to help. When God wants you to help, he'll open it up. So you need to learn to pray, how long, O Lord, will you allow this kind of thing? How long will you let these things happen? You see, no sin goes unseen, unnoticed, or unheeded by God. It's almost like he has a CCTV camera over you and over me. And he doesn't just have it over me watching my actions. He has it inside watching my heart. He knows when I do things because I want to look good. 
He knows when I do things out of covetousness or greed or lust. He knows. You don't know. He knows. And he records it. I don't mean you to scare people, but he records it. Because he tells us, he tells us what Nebuchadnezzar's heart is. He tells us that, oh yeah, you, you build a town out of crime. You're unjust in the way you operate. He, he knows. Our response is prayer. You see, Habakkuk presents us with two stark and clear choices in terms of how we respond to the suffering and the evil that we see and the suffering that we experience for ourselves and the abuse and the oppression, all of those things, he presents us with two choices. One is that we become a victim of it. And victims are people who have no hope. They're people who take no action. They don't do anything. They just commentate on things. And often in victims comes bitterness. A bitter root grows up. It shapes, it affects how I think about everything. But the other response is that of a survivor. When you're a survivor, you're somebody who does have hope. It might seem small, but it's there. Lamenting is the seedbed of hope. And by lamenting, I mean that deep praying, asking God, how long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? Learning to pray those kinds of prayers is a seedbed for hope. Because you're no longer trusting in yourself for change, but you're trusting in God for change. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. And you'll see next week how he responds to it. But lamenting creates survivors. It's, it's something that is durable. It's something that God does in you. That you don't respond according to your culture, according to your actions. Just want to read these, before we finish, a few words from this poem, stroke hymn by William Coper, an 18th century poet. Gosh, time's gone. I'll just read this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but wait to smell the flower. I know time's gone, but I would like us to respond with one song. So, Becky, do you mind coming up? We're going to sing... Um, we're going to sing the song uh, Cornerstone, just really in response to this. And I just want to read this from uh, one of the commentaries that I've been working in. Faith endures as seeing him who is invisible. 
Faith endures the disappointments, the hardships and the heartaches of life by recognising that all comes from the hand of him who is too wise to err and too loving to be unkind. So long as we are occupied with any other object than God himself, there will be neither rest for the heart nor peace for the mind. But when we receive all that, all that enters our lives from his hand, then no matter what may be our circumstances or surroundings, we shall be enabled to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Let's stand and we're going to sing together. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events, please visit our website which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.